Hello, I'm Em, and I'm a second year theatre student. That is the creative arts, is what I should mention that. And I'm, I'm going to be reading the Bible for us. And so you've all got one of these when you came in. It's on the inside slip, uh, and you can follow along as I read. As he was growing near, already on the way down the mountain of olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice from all the might, for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your, vis- of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Good afternoon, welcome. 
my name's Rob, and we have the great, well, I have the great privilege, and hopefully you do too, of being able to work through this part of uh, God's Word. Before we do that, though, uh, I'll get you to meet each other on the table, say good day, perhaps, uh, and talk about living out of home. You may not be living out of home. Maybe you long to live out of home. Well, let's say you're living out of home. You've got your own place. What are the best and worst things about having your own place, living out of home? Packed up, moved out, you're in a rental. What are the best and worst things? Some of you might be experiencing right now. Um, have a chat with each other. <laughs>
uh, tip if you're renting a place, to beware of that sort of thing when the inspection comes and the threat to your bond uh, if you have if the owner has to repair walls <coughs> and things like that. Don't don't destroy your wall. Here in Luke's gospel, in this passage, it's a passage about ownership and tenancy and who has the right to do what and what will happen when the owner comes. Now we get that you've probably heard that read in that parable. We'll come back to that. We'll get to that. But just as a bit of a re uh, to, to rehearse where we've been in Luke's gospel, we haven't been in Luke's gospel for some time now, and we're in the last six chapters of Luke's gospel. Over the next six weeks, we're going to look at the last six chapters of Luke's gospel. And Jesus, in the last little while in Luke's gospel, has been coming to Jerusalem. He's arriving in Jerusalem for the first time uh, since he was a boy, uh, at least in Luke's gospel. And he's arriving for an inspection. An inspection, more than just his property, it's his city. Now, if um, if we forward through on our... Sorry, Jeremy, I'm not set up. Ready for this? Here we go. Oh, look at that. Might help if I hit the right button. There we go. Just so you know where we're in Luke's Gospel. Um, this is us here in Luke's Gospel with Jesus on the verge of entering in Jerusalem. And in this passage, enters Jerusalem. Where we've been over the last couple of years. Um, welcome if you're just joining us today. About two and a half years late, but that's okay. Uh, Jesus comes and he lives up in Nazareth. That's where he grows up. He's born in Bethlehem down south. Grows up in Nazareth. And then his ministry, his uh, mission work, starts in chapter 4, up in Galilee, and he works his way south towards Jerusalem. And he's working his way, sorry, not only is he working his way towards Jerusalem, his mission and his goal, his whole ministry is headed towards Jerusalem. It finds its meaning in Jerusalem. He's been speaking of arriving in Jerusalem for some time now, for the last 10 chapters, in fact. So in Luke chapter 9, verse 31, Jesus starts to talk about Jerusalem. He says um, that, uh, or we're told that Moses and Elijah appeared uh, on the mountain with Jesus and they speak of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. That's way back in chapter 9. Also in chapter 9, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Verse 53, but the people did not receive him because he set his face toward Jerusalem. Chapter 13, verse 22, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. It's the geographical goal of his ministry, and he'd been waiting for it for some time. <coughs> okay, that's great. That's where he's headed. But what's this mean? We've been waiting for about 10 chapters, but for much, much longer, centuries longer, centuries of God's faithful people have been looking out for the long-promised king who would come to Jerusalem, who would restore Jerusalem and rule in Jerusalem. And those longings of 
ages and ages of God's faithful people are brought up again in this passage. In the multitude of the disciples that gather around Jesus on the road as they head into Jerusalem, as they shout the words of Psalm 118, written some thousand years before Jesus, and rehearsed by God's faithful people. What do they say? Verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This multitude of disciples as Jesus is making his way down the mountain towards Jerusalem. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the one they've been waiting for. Like faithful Cronulla Sharks fans. For decades and decades and decades. Maybe this year. Maybe this year. Maybe this year it will come. Now the time has come. That has come. And this multitude that we're told about gather around Jesus to rejoice, to praise God with a loud voice for all his mighty works that God has done. We don't like to talk too much about kings and monarchy and stuff like that. Strangely enough, Jesus doesn't either. <coughs> Whenever the topic's brought up, he hoses it down. The demons know who Jesus is. They know he's the king, the Christ, the son of God, and Jesus forbids them to speak. Even Peter, the disciple, when he calls Jesus the Christ, Jesus says, don't tell anyone about, about this. Jesus is always playing down and not wanting to talk about kingship and being the Christ, which is what Christ means, to be the king. Here, the multitude acclaim that the king is coming. The king is coming, blessings be upon him, and Jesus is silent. Or actually, he embraces it. He embraces it. The, the Pharisees in the crowd, this time, they're the ones that want to play it down. Verse 39. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Fat chance, Jesus says. That's not going to happen. He says, verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The very stones. Interesting thought, isn't it? I wouldn't mind seeing that. You've been there. It's the disciples have been quiet. Imagine the boulders around Jesus. Uh, probably looking at each other going, did you know anything about this? Uh, what are we supposed to cry out? <laughs> We've been waiting 40 million years for this point. What do we say? There's this king who's coming in to his kingdom, it's a news that you just can't contain and you can't stop from coming out that the king is now known. It's time to celebrate, rejoice and praise for the king has come. The king has come. And this passage, uh, if you, for you guys that are regulars at uh, in Bible Talks, this passage is very much like uh, Jesus' week. I don't know if you've sort of thought about that as was read out for us by him. The, the multitude, uh, the, the uni Bible group, uh, making a big loud noise about how good God is and about his king, about Jesus. And the Pharisees, the UAW authorities, uh, <laughs> saying, Sam, rebuke your members, tell them to be quiet. They're talking about Jesus, the king. Tell them to be quiet. No, we're not going to be quiet. The very stones will cry out, maybe concrete, 
uh, will, will cry out. Uh, no chalking on concrete, by the way. Uh, you're not supposed to do that. Uh, but it's what disciples, followers of Jesus have been doing. Yeah, do it, come join uh, What uh, disciples of Jesus have been doing for hundreds and thousands of years. Making the message of the King who's come known. Yeah. Here's an interesting thing for you guys who are Bible readers and interested in, in Luke's Gospel. The word multitude is only used a couple of times in Luke's Gospel. Only twice in Luke's Gospel is the word multitude used of a, uh, of a multitude who praises God. Only two times. This is one. Uh, when is the other? I'll give you 10 seconds, maybe 15, to see, confer with your people on your tables to see if you know. I we were looking it up. Yes. Okay, does anyone know? Does anyone want to have a guess? John is thinking, yes, he might know. Does anyone else want to, want to, want to jump in and trump? Okay, John. The angels and the shepherds. The angels, yeah, yeah, way back in chapter 2. Spot on, spot on. When the angel, the angel appears to the shepherds in the field at Jesus' birth, and suddenly there appears with the angel, back in this is chapter 2, verse 13, a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And some of you will know that verse well, you sing it acted out, uh, things like that. Picked it up, they're all the same words that are here in chapter 19 as Jesus enters Jerusalem. Except at Jesus' birth you have the heavenly multitude looking downward saying peace on earth. (coughs) And in chapter 19 you've got the earthly multitude that focused upward shouting peace in heaven. It's like these two multitudes bookend Jesus' life and ministry on earth. One announcing his arrival and the other his glorious departure. One multitude, the the heavenly multitude of angels, announcing peace towards the multitude on earth on whom his favour rests. And now they are here, this multitude who are... on whom God's favour rests, are now echoing that praise many, perhaps 30 years later, back into the heavens. It's almost like straight back at you guys. We know what you were talking about. And back at you. And it's like it's just the echoing of praise across heaven and earth about the king who's come into his city. The longed-for reality of seeing God's king crown has begun and his time is now here. And the rise and rise of Jesus is coming to a head as he embraces the acclaim of the crowd as God's king. But, verse 41, when he drew near the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Why does this king, on uh, this king who's has an imposing rule, an opposing rise to rule, this heaven-backed king, break down 
over his own city and wept. Well, he says, because the city itself is going to be broken down by its enemies. What three? Verse 23. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Why weep over enemies? When you're the powerful, acclaimed king, acclaimed by heaven and earth, surely with ease this glorious king, if he's really this glorious king, could defeat the enemies of his own city easily. With both arms tied behind his back, he could defeat those enemies, surely. Well, it's true that in a few chapters' time, with both arms nailed out, he will defeat an enemy. But here he's speaking of true armies who will come and bring an end to the city. He weeps because this destruction is coming at the hand of God his Father. And Jesus, as he comes in, is bringing that judgment as much as he is bringing the kingdom of God. Verse 44 says it. Second part of verse 44. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. You were not aware of the things that made for peace. You didn't know when when the landlord was coming. You didn't know when the inspection time was. You did not know when you were going to be held accountable. It's the language of God visiting to enact the long-standing sentence of judgment. It's a bit like how our legal system works. Although I think it still works this way. You can be guilty of a crime and it won't change your life one single bit just to be guilty of a crime. You may never be convicted. But you might be convicted by a court and found guilty. And still, life may not change a great deal for you. One day, you then may be sentenced by a judge. And still, you might enjoy quite a bit of freedom as somebody found guilty and under a sentence. Until, until the actual day, I don't know what they call that day, the legal people might tell me, when the court police and the sheriff actually come and visit your home and say, it's now time to go to prison. As Jesus comes in, he's saying, this is the time. The, the knock is at the door. The sentence has been, has been um, read out centuries previous. The time of waiting is now over, and you haven't even realised. And so Jerusalem is at the time, just before this sentence is being visited upon them. Why? Because of, well, many things wrong in the city, I put, there's a couple of them you see here, down point three. Broken down city, broken religion. Vital things are broken. Verse 45, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold it, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The temple, the place where God would meet with his people and people would meet with God has become a retail 
outlet. He drives out those who sold. You've made the house of prayer a den of robbers. Retail unashamedly replaces relationship with God. It did so in Jesus' day as the buying and selling takes place in the place where people should be praying. And it does so to our day. God's replaced by retail. Many other things as well, but that's just the one that we see here in the passage. If you're smart people, you can analyse the world, have a chat with each other. How do you think you see that happening? Maybe you don't see that happening at all, but being replaced by retail. But tell me how you think you see it happening if you do. Have a chat on your favourites for a moment. This is this is a little bit of an aside for you to maybe a bit of an aside for the uh, for the art students for the humanities and all guys. The rest of you can snooze for a moment. Uh, maybe anyone studying subject west of the library. Um, <laughs> <laughs> See how do how do 
we know how we evangelize, how, how we make the message of Jesus known in the gospel. How do atheists evangelize? Well, it's not by doing things that Richard Dawkins does. That is, say that God doesn't exist, or try to prove that God doesn't exist, or uh, or promote the the badness of God, or to talk about God at all. That's not actually how atheism is evangelizes uh, or promotes. In fact, whenever someone like a Richard Dawkins keeps talking about God and how he may or may not exist and probably doesn't exist, next the other's great service because uh, we can't get airtime in the media, but he can, so we just keep running off the back of what he talks about. He's actually more of a theist than an atheist. Uh, not that he believes in God, but he keeps talking about God. God, at his heart, is relation and speaks. His gospel is a spoken message. And it's a spoken message about relationship with him. Evangelism involves speaking and bringing people to know God and his king. Atheistic evangelism isn't about speaking a message, denying God's existence. It's about replacing God with what's at the centre of reality. See, what's at the centre of reality of atheistic thinking? It's material. It's matter. It's just stuff. It's the physical world. That's all there is. How do you evangelise that? You don't do it with a spoken message. You do it by getting in touch with matter. More stuff. True atheistic evangelism is actually seen in your letterbox with just a whole bunch of advertising that happens. Not that any one of these is bad. I mean, everybody needs to advertise this stuff, but the whole program of, that we have of this gaining of stuff, of gaining of stuff, the non-stop, just, you don't, you don't even have to talk about it. You know, that person's got shoes, but not just shoes, they've got those shoes. I want those shoes. Oh, that person's got a phone. Not any phone, they've got that phone that I'd like. You don't even have to speak about it. It's just in the air that we breathe. As we get caught up in stuff, we're actually being converted by materialism. That's how you get converted by materialism. Not by believing a message so much as by just taking on board stuff. And here, in the temple, the people take on board stuff ahead of God and displace God. They haven't denied him. We're probably not going around saying he's not there or that it doesn't matter. They're just displaced. That's what happens through the day. We just displace God with our stuff. Our prayer is displaced by stuff. And it's because of that that God is going to visit judgment on his city. And Jesus is angry because of this defective religion which distracts people from God and so he announces judgment upon it and rightly so. Also, we see broken authority. This leads to a confrontation in the temple between Jesus and the local government and it shows how broken the authority is and the leadership of the city is. 
Jesus is pulled up uh, as he's teaching in the temple. Uh, verse Chapter 20 and verse 1. Teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, notice, Luke says, preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? See, Jesus is doing some public evangelism in his city, city that he's the king of, and he's questioned. Why? Why are you doing this? Who's given you the authority uh, to do this? Don't be surprised if you're questioned about uh, or challenged about whether public evangelism is allowable. It's been going on since Jesus' day. Um, and the interaction that follows between Jesus and the authority shows that their authority is actually quite lame and defunct. They don't know who John the Baptist, this great figure at the time, they don't know really who was behind him, whether it was God or not. And it leads Jesus to tell a parable, a parable of broken tendency. And he's teaching the people, he begins to tell a parable about a man and his vineyard, verse, <coughs> nine, uh, verse 9, of actually chapter 20, which is the second part of that reading. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty <coughs> And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third. This one also they wounded and passed out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I'll send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him so that, our inher- that the inheritance may be ours. Now what you see here is a fairly normal farming sort of business. Come from the farm area, rural area, you might be aware of this sort of thing. Someone owns land and they contract it out to a farmer to come in and farm it for them. They sign off on the share of the profits beforehand and away they go. Farm and see what happens. However, when the owner of this farm, Vineyard actually, sends his agent to collect his share of the fruit, he's rejected and mistreated three times. The owner says he'll send his own son. And they kill him. They kill him because he is the son, the heir. And the reason they give is if the heir is gone, well, no one's going to be interested in the land. The person who inherits it is dead. And we can stay on the land and do as we please, unopposed. And so... 15, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. It's Jesus speaking about the local authorities' rejection of God as the rightful owner. But it's true for us too. Every person throughout history. Each person who lives and is born is given a lease on life from the maker of life. In case you didn't know, you didn't make yourself alive. You got born. Born. Sorry. Someone gave you life. And you have great freedom to do with it whatever you like. You can use it to great great harm or great good. You can use it to do nothing whatsoever. You can be useless. 
But the owner of that life is seeking fruit. All of humanity is here. God is not the owner of my life. I am the owner of my life. And we tell him and his messengers where to shut it. Because I'm going to live my life, my life, the way I want to. And just like Jesus was silenced then, humanity wants to silence Jesus now. Jesus, leave me alone and let me run my life. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that was written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is, when Jesus comes, he brings great celebration, for the king has come. Multitudes gather to praise, the rocks are ready to open their mouths, or whatever they do. <laughs> but he brings a kingdom which will break in, in judgment, on those who refuse to receive God, and refuse to give to God what is God's. Final verse, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush It's great. Um, it's not well known, but I found it in preparing for this. A Jewish proverb it says, If a stone falls on a pot, alas for the pot. If the pot falls on the stone, alas for the pot. <laughs> Either way, the pot breaks. Jesus, the, the cornerstone that was rejected by the builders and has become the cornerstone of God's building, beware, for he will crush. Beware of falling on him, he will be broken to pieces. The king says, turn back to God. Turn back to the one who's given you life. You've got great freedom. Don't use it to reject God. Don't use it to turn against God because he will come in visitation to take back what is rightly his. Your life. Be in right relationship with him. Receive Jesus, the king who's come. Repent and acknowledge God and ask him for forgiveness. Perhaps you need to do that. Perhaps you need to do that today. Well, you can do that. I'm going to pray in a moment. Actually, by the way, uh, there is a space on this little response sheet. We'd love to get back to you in a moment. Which says, um, I'm a regular. You can see that's the little box, circle, sorry. Uh, I'm doing visiting. I'd like to read and cover Mark with someone. If you want to find out more about uh, Jesus and read the Gospels more closely, tick that box. We've got people ready to read Mark with you. If you've got other questions, then you can drop them on the back. But if you know that you're actually not right with God, get right with him today. Because Jesus the King has come. To bring forgiveness, but bring judgment to I'm going to leave us in prayer and pray for us. Turn to God. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who is your King, who has come and taken his rightful place as king. Lord, we thank you that he not only brings your kingdom, but brings righteous judgment. 
upon corrupt religion that distracts from you, from all things that replace you, whether that's retail or whatever other things are of this world. Lord, you have come to deal with those things. Lord, turn our hearts back to you to acknowledge our sin and bring us to acknowledge Jesus as King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello everyone, I'm Sam, I'm my first year studying public health and I'm just going to lead us in talking to God if you want to value it. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord you are such an awesome God, the creator and sustainer of all things. Father thank you so much that you love us and that you have given us true and lasting life in your son Jesus. God, we want to thank you so much for all the people who came along to the Mark Drama and Bible Talks as part of the Jesus Weeks here at uni. We praise you that so many people were able to hear the truth about Jesus proclaimed so clearly. For those who came that don't yet know you, we pray that you will be revealing to them their need for a saviour so they might repent and trust Jesus to be ready for when he does come back to end the pain, judge evil, and reign forever. And we ask that those people who still have questions will continue to investigate Jesus and find the truth about him. Even though Jesus Weeks are officially over, thank you, God, that you are still at work here at UD. Please be working through us to continue to proclaim the awesome message of Jesus to those who are lost and hurting here on campus. Thank you, God, for the freedom that we have here at uni to meet together and read the Bible in groups on campus. Thank you for our faculty Bible study leaders and their desire to see us grow in our love and knowledge of Jesus. Please be giving them wisdom and energy so that they can continue to lead us faithfully. Finally, we thank you so much for our brothers and sisters in Christ at Griffith University. Thank you that they have the opportunity to look at the topic of sex and sexuality at their main meetings. We ask that these talks will be an encouragement to the members of Griffith Christian students to live godly lives and to help each other live their lives for God. We bring all these things before you, God, knowing that you are in control and you listen to our prayers. In Jesus' name.